broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Midtown Business Radio. Thanks so much for making us a part of your afternoon again today. Appreciate all the folks out there across the globe, actually, who've been listening to our show. I went back and checked on the statistics the other day. Over 4,500 downloads of the show since we started uh, doing it back in July. And uh, we really appreciate the folks that have taken the time to download our content, to check it out, meet some of the experts that we have brought on to the show, talking about a variety of subjects uh, across a number of verticals uh, for the business-to-business community here around Atlanta, and obviously some value to be gained for uh, listeners around uh, the globe from wherever they may be listening. So thanks again for stopping in on the show today. We had a little bit of lineup change, um, and I'm going to have the opportunity to bring back Eric Jones from Jellyfish. He's going to talk to us about uh, pay-per-click advertising, and that's something that uh, I certainly have some experience in, and as the as the clip we'll talk about, uh, we've done a little, bit of about, uh, a little bit of that on our own efforts to uh, try and increase awareness about our website, uh, about our practice, and so forth. So uh, Eric's going to be able to share some of the pitfalls of doing it yourself and uh, share w- the type of questions you need to ask if you're going to engage in uh, pay-per-click advertising and uh, why it might make sense to link up with a firm such as Jellyfish uh, when you're trying to put together a digital strategy plan. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll jump on to that uh, segment we recorded with Eric Jones of Jellyfish. We're going to be getting into pay-per-click advertising. It's something I know a lot of people are going to be familiar with as it relates to uh, Google AdWords, for example, kind of a do-it-yourself option, but uh, there lies many perils in doing that yourself. I know that from personal experience. So can we talk a little bit about how does it work? Can you describe exactly what it is and uh, some differences? Because obviously there's Google, Bing, and Yahoo, uh, and there's several factors that affect how each of these work. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. So, so pay-per-click or paid search uh, is really an advertisement on Google, Bing, or Yahoo, uh, and those are the main search engines that everybody would have to focus on. But essentially, it's your way to be positioned in uh, a top spot for specific keywords. Uh, ultimately, people would click on that, and then you drive them to some page within your website, uh, and you would you would be bidding it. So it's a it's kind of a live mm-hmm. auction mentality where you're bidding against anybody else that's interested in that keyword. Uh, and so you're ultimately you bid on a keyword, you have an ad that shows up, people click on it, and every time someone clicks on it, they go to, to a, go through to a web page, and that is essentially um, pay-per-click or paid search advertising. So each time someone clicks my ad, I pay a little bit of money. You pay a little bit of money, and that, that, uh, that bid structure, uh, so like a live auction, uh, which we're all very familiar with, uh, varies depending on competitive forces of the keyword. So things like um, uh, tax preparation in tax season mm-hmm. uh, could cost H&R Block or others, you know, $30 per click. Wow. Uh, and then other keywords that um, that ultimately have a lot less competition in, in a variety of seasons could cost as little as $0.05 cents to $0.25 cents per click. And mm-hmm. so it really does depend on the competitive nature of that individual keyword. So if you're effective in bidding... Um, I guess obviously you want to be collaborating with folks like yourselves to make sure that when they get to your your landing page on your website that it's actually useful and something that's going to compel that person that you've now attracted to you uh, to convert, to actually do something, take action, engage with you. Absolutely. So one of the things you have to understand about Google, and, and we will reference Google a lot because they are really the ones that, that built this this model. And so Google's really always trying to build a very relevant experience. So if I type in ice cream shop and I get an ad about an ice cream shop, I don't ultimately want to land on a page that's selling me cars. Right? <laughs> that's not a very relevant experience, right. and, the, and the user would be frustrated by that. Yep. Um, and so Google ultimately um, really sets up the experience so that the keyword really needs to match the ad that ultimately la- matches the landing page. And then that landing page is where, again, as you said, you want someone to take an action, whether that's to, in the ice cream shop example, click for directions or find hours or pick up the phone and call. Um, in some of the other examples, like the automobile one, fill out a form, view multiple automobiles. All of those actions would ultimately be considered success, and that's really what you're trying to get people to do every time they click, uh, you know, and you're paying for that. Mm-hmm. So. And from what I understand, there's several factors that can affect how well 
you know, your ad ends up being seen or at least how, you know, high in the rankings, if you will, that you end up. Can you talk about those things like the cost per click and impressions and things like that? Absolutely. So the the factors themselves on how much it costs on a per click basis uh, is really based on how much you want to spend. And so if someone wants to spend $5 per click and you only want to spend $2.50 per click, then you may not end up in the number one spot. So that's one of the factors is simply how much you're willing to pay. Other factors, again, are that relevant experience. So Google's really going to look at, okay, the keyword that you're bidding on, ice cream shop, does that end up in the ad? So does it, you know, local ice cream shops in the in the ad and ultimately the landing page? That will create a very relevant experience, which ultimately creates a quality score. And so that quality score will ultimately sort of uh, allow Google to say, okay, relevant experience, good quality score. I'm going to allow you to bid less to be in a number one position. Mm. It's a very, you know, science and and um, and uh, business kind of mentality that that goes into this art function. Um, and so it's that, that kind of thing. Impressions, uh, you, you referenced impressions, is really how many times people are actually searching on those keywords. Mm-hmm. And Google has tools that allow you to sort of see the impression volume. And so, you know, how much you want to bid, how many times people are searching on that, ultimately creates the opportunity for you to show up. And then your ad will ultimately result in a click. And so we look at click-through rates. So how relevant is your ad based on the keyword will drive a click-through rate. The higher the click-through rate, the more times people are driving through to your website. Uh, and those are really some really good factors uh, to indicate how successful your, your ad campaign is. I see. And how, how long do you want to give it uh, as you evaluate those, you know, those analytics, if you will, the, the data that comes from how often does someone click my ad? It was displayed to 15,000 people. And you know, how long do you want to give it before you make changes? Well, I think you, you referenced it right there, 15,000 people. And the number is a little bit subjective based on, you know, again, how many people might be searching in any given day, week, or month. But mm-hmm. you do want to give it some time, and time is really based on the number of people searching on it. So if, a, if your keyword is really only searched on 10 times a day, uh, to really get any kind of sampling size, you probably want to let it run for a week or two weeks before you really made any, any judgment calls. Gotcha. If your keyword searched on 100,000 times in a day, uh, then you ultimately have a larger sample size that you can, you can judge. And so you really just, you don't, you want to avoid making, uh, you know, the, the knee-jerk reactions of nothing's happening yet. Um, time is in, is in Google's uh, favor, so they, <laughs> they will allow um, multiple experiences, so the ad to show up and people to click through to your landing environment. They'll allow that to happen several times before they really rank you. Um, you know, again, that quality score number, you, you start out at a five, they give you a, a pretty medium score, and then based on time, how many times people click through to your website, may take an action, they'll say, okay, people are really doing this a lot, so they're going to start ranking you into a six, a seven, an eight, uh, and 10 is the highest you can possibly get. Or they'll say, okay, over time, people are, are not spending time on your website, and they're not clicking through because your ads aren't relevant, so then they'll start to push you down. So you can look at these factors as indicators of, you know, how successful we're being by what my click-through rate is again, what my quality score is on a keyword basis. And if you see those changing, then you now know that there's been enough time uh, for you to be um, evaluated, and ultimately you can start making making decisions then. And I would assume that, you know, when we talked about those factors, um, you know, the click-through rate and, and uh, impressions and all of those types of things, that that's where specialists such as the folks at jellyfish kind of come into having value and that you you understand all those things you understand the levers that kind of make those go up and down and also you understand as you talked about a moment ago how long should i give it before i kind of start you know making changes and things like that uh, as opposed to doing it like i first did google adwords a long time ago doing it on my own and you know quickly pulled the the plug because i just i was like i got nervous didn't feel like i was getting anything for the money i was spending i would assume that's where your kind of value offering comes in is that you have the ability to affect those in a positive way as well as understand where's this going so we um we we, we've seen uh you know across industries and across uh verticals and and different clients you know click-through rates are going to completely vary right and so if you're judging yourself on what you think might be a best practice for the click-through rate you may as you said pull the plug sooner than what you really needed to you also may be looking at it from I'm not, you're not sending them to the right place, meaning uh, you don't have the right landing page. You're sending everybody to the home page, which is not a best practice. Um, 
you may have not separated out your, your keywords into a, a very good um, and well-organized campaign and ad group structure. And that's how Google uh, organizes their, their um, back-end system in, in the keywords. They say, okay, how many ad, word, ad keywords excuse me, go into an ad group, and how many ad groups do you have in a campaign, and how many campaigns do you have in, inside of your account? All those factors play into how well your account's going to do. And if you don't know those kinds of factors, um, meaning you haven't done it enough or had enough time invested in it, then certainly your account could suffer. And so ultimately the expertise that we bring to the table is that, that on any given, you know, sort of month, you know, Jellyfish in itself is probably managing anywhere between 10 and $20 million in actual AdWords activity across 100 different accounts. And so you can see that our learnings would be sort of exponential compared to someone who's spending $1,000 a month and how, how fast they can learn. Mm-hmm. And something you said a moment ago I think was kind of key and interesting that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about is you, you mentioned that having someone land on your front page may not necessarily be the best thing. And in, it sounds like in, in many cases it's not. It absolutely is not. It's actually not the best um, experience. Your homepage is, for any website is really meant to be a catch-all. It's really meant to sort of say, okay, I don't know exactly why you're here, so I've got to give you, you know, several options to go mm-hmm. deeper into my website. Mm-hmm. Where from an, from an AdWords perspective or a pay-per-click perspective, they specifically typed in a keyword and found your ad, and you ultimately should drive them to either a very specific product page, a location page, a more information page, something very much further down uh, within your website's structure. Uh, that, that's really the best practice. And okay. I can't say that you even have that page built. Right. Uh, in a lot of cases, <laughs> we build landing pages specifically for our pay-per-click campaigns. Uh-huh. And we've often found that they work the best. Um, based on everything that we've seen. I see. We've been talking with Eric Jones from Jellyfish.net, the experts in digital marketing. And uh, I've got a I've got a campaign going. I'm not getting results from it on my Google AdWords campaign. Help me with that. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of things that could be factored into that. So uh, you could be bidding on very broad keywords. Uh, so, for example, shoes. Right, you can say, oh, I'm a, I sell shoes, so I want to bid on shoes. Well, shoes is a, yeah. is a really broad term, and yeah. so you may need to be bidding on more so uh, leather shoes or brown shoes or, brown, you, know, any, gotcha. you know, different. You need to sort of narrow that down. That would be the first place we start. How broad are the keywords that you're trying to bid on? Secondarily, how competitive? You know, broadness actually makes them more competitive because everybody is bidding on some form of the word shoe. Um, in some cases. So you ultimately need to figure out how competitive the landscape is. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that is really, as we just alluded to, the landing experience. So right. when I actually get someone to kick on a, click on my ad and go to a landing page, did they get to a page that was specifically to shoes or brown shoes or brown leather shoes? And all of those factors will factor into how successful your campaign is. And, and you know, again, we would look at any number of things um, with regard to that. We've sort of left off mobile. Uh, for the time being, and, and mobile is a big thing. People search differently on a mobile device and yeah. a tablet as they do on their desktop, and so you ultimately need to factor that in as well. And so, again, any number of factors could be causing your campaign to be performing poorly. I see. So, and, and we talked about the fact that on in, in a pay-per-click campaign, we're bidding on you know placement against other folks that are in my space that also want to catch those prospective customers. And and does that bidding process? Does it work similar to when I go to the auction and I bid on something, I know what the highest bid is, I know where I need to be to position myself, or is it a blind bidding process? I'm saying this is what my budget is. I mean, you know, do I have information provided to me that kind of help me understand where I need to be thinking about from a budget perspective? Can I get myself towards that top spot? Yeah, Google will give you some directional information, meaning it's not going to tell you what you need to pay to be in the top spot. Um, I mean, it just it doesn't do that. It wants to be fair to everybody, right? But it does say, you know, you actually are bidding only enough to be on the first page, not at the top of the first page. So it, it sort of gives you some directional I information. See. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and ultimately, there are two other factors at play. So you're going to put in how much the maximum you want to bid every time someone clicks on you, and then you're also going to put in how much you want to spend on a daily basis. And so, for example, if you said, well, my daily budget is $100, which ultimately is roughly $3,000 for the month, and I'm willing to bid $5 for every click, right? So you can ultimately say, well, the max clicks I'm going to get is 20 clicks that day. And Google 
will stick within that um, within that daily budget pretty well. They're they're usually within about a penny or two of that daily budget because they they know that you set that budget for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. I want to be number one. Can you help me do that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you can be number one anytime you want to be uh, on any keyword if you are willing to pay the. Show price. me the money. <laughs> and unfortunately, I don't I don't know what the price would be for every keyword as I as I alluded to the um, right the uh, you know. Uh, tax preparation in tax season is at least $30 per click. And so to be up there, you'd have to be spending 30 to $35 per click. Uh, but in other keywords, it could be $0.10 cents per click to be in the number one position. So everyone, again, live auction mentality, has the opportunity to be in the number one space. How much it costs you to get to that number one space is based on you, your competitive factors, the experience from keyword to ad to landing page, and your quality score, all of those factors factor into what it's going to cost to get into the number one spot. And you talked about quality score. I, I'm fairly confident that you're able to help that that score ranking for me. Absolutely. Um, it's very hard. I've, I've seen only once uh, in all the experiences I've had uh, campaigns with 10 out of 10. Uh, on them, so it's very hard to get a 10 out of 10. You're really striving for anything 7 uh, and above. 7 is a really good quality score. 7, 8, 9s are really good quality scores, and ultimately it's about that experience from keyword to ad to landing page and making sure that, you're, that's, that you've really narrowed down the keywords. The number of keywords sending to a specific landing page will really help that quality score. It, it's, it's a lot about diligence. It's a lot about really defining and refining those um, those keywords and ultimately making sure that your landing page is spot on to those keywords. Well, uh, our, our time is almost up, but uh, do you have, before we have to go, maybe a parting thought or two as it relates to you know folks that are thinking maybe they should get into the pay-per-click arena, why they may, may want to think about jellyfish or, or any other you know thought you want to leave the, the folks with before we have to go? Absolutely. Uh, pay-per-click is by far one of the most economical uh, sort of marketing and specifically digital marketing uh, tools that you can ultimately use, mainly because you can set a budget, you can cap how much you want to spend, which ultimately can indicate uh, how much you, you think your product is worth, you know, how much marketing you want to do on an individual product basis. And so by that, by that scale alone, it's actually extremely cost-effective uh, in the grand scheme of other marketing opportunities. It's one of the areas that we focus a lot of our attention on. Uh, and in in doing that, uh, though, there is a real art and science blend to it, and we would recommend that you work with um, a professional, so a service provider like ourselves, uh, Jellyfish, or others that really do know what they're doing because mm-hmm. while at the same time you could waste a lot of money yep. if you don't know what you're doing, and that's never good for anybody. That's right. And we've been talking with Eric Jones, one of the experts at Jellyfish.net. Um, if you hit their website, they've got some excellent information there, blog-type information, case studies, things like that, that you can really kind of get a sense of uh, the expertise that they bring to the table. Obviously, they, you can link up with them uh, on social media sites through their website as well. We've already done that, so so if you're following the show at uh, Midtown BRX on Facebook and Twitter, you can also get to Jellyfish through us as well. But uh, thanks again. I know you're a busy guy, and I appreciate you sharing this inf- information. I think it's useful for us to be able to get it to our business listeners out there because everybody wants to increase their brand awareness, but they want to do so smartly with the budget that they have. So I appreciate you sharing this information, Eric. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you. All right, man. We'll talk to you again real soon. It was great catching up with Eric Jones from Jellyfish.net. If you are working on your digital marketing strategy, be sure that you link up and at least talk to uh, folks like what you'll find there at Jellyfish.net, including Eric Jones. Clearly have some excellent information that could be of benefit to you and your business as you try to improve brand awareness, get your displays put in front of the people that have an interest in your product or service and ultimately convert by driving them to a well-designed website. Uh, Make sure you check out Eric Jones' other segments that he's done with us here on the show, talking about things like analytics, SEO, and SEM as strategies, things like that. Uh, He's got some great information that he's shared with us in the past, so be sure to search in the search fields on the Midtown Business Radio X website uh, and you can find his other segments. And I wanted to take a couple of quick minutes here and go through and bring back some of the guests that uh, have really made an impression on me over time here on the show. Just play a couple of short clips from several of them. I wanted to reintroduce you to Laura Hodson, the CEO and founder of Now Account. They're a really cool company that helps companies get access to capital without having to go through business loans um, and factoring. Um, they were able to let the business-to-business owner be able to get slow-paying accounts funded uh, and paid within three to five days. So uh, if you're having some accounts that 
that are aging a little bit, pushing out into those 40, 50 plus days uh, from the time that you've sent them an invoice, you're going to want to take a minute and uh, meet Laura Hodson here. So let's check her out. Can you talk a little bit about what are the options out there that most people are familiar with that have been trying to kind of tackle this problem? I mean, I know we've, we talked a little bit about the fact that there's companies out there that do what's called factoring sure. and there's bank loans, different things you can try to do to get cash right. to work with. So what does a small business, you know, before what they know they about you, today? what do they what do they think they have to do? Well, you know, I always think about the, the cash that you need to grow your business can come from a number of sources. And if I were to think about them on a continuum of cost and risk, the lowest cost, lowest risk capital you can possibly access is your own cash flow from operations, right? That's the most beautiful business on the planet if your cash flow from operations can fund your growth. And that's really what Now Account's doing is unlocking your own cash flow from operations. There are other options, of course, you can get a line of credit. I mean, and there are still some small banks that will make lines of credit. The challenge for a lot of businesses is that the collateral they require to do that is either something you may not have. If Certainly if you're a service business like consulting or staffing, you don't have equipment and inventory, but they'll be happy to make you a loan if you sign a personal guarantee. Yeah, so they'll get um, your house down. That's nice. Yes, exactly. Um, that opportunity was offered to me with my manufacturing business. And here I was, a new mom, you know, thinking, I'm not signing a personal guarantee. And by the way, that's not a business loan anymore, right? right? That is a loan to my, that is a personal loan to my business. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, lending works for some businesses and, and lines up nicely. Um, there are factors out there. Um, most true factors like Wells Fargo and BB&T and CIT provide a fantastically valuable service, but their minimum line's a million dollars usually. So they're serving businesses that have already started to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's a fantastic service um, if you can access it. But for most small businesses, we can't access that. You know, I didn't need a million dollars. I needed 200000 at any one time. Our goal at Now Account is to grow you to the point where you do need that million, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can access these other types of capital that mid-sized and large companies enjoy. Uh, there are discounters out there that will often call themselves recourse factors. And typically what they're doing is they will loan you maybe 80, 85% of the invoice, and then they'll charge you an interest rate every 30 days. But then if that invoice doesn't get paid, it gets charged back to you. So while they call it factoring, it's actually a lending product. And that tends to be pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. If your customers are taking 30, 60, 90 days to pay, mm -hmm. most people's margins have a hard time supporting that for any length of time. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking a little bit about how your your model is one that it's not a la carte, but I mean, it gives the, the, the client the ability to choose which accounts of theirs where they have some receivables right. that make the most sense to involve with now account. They don't right. have to say, okay, now we're going to, you know, reach out to this source of capital. So now we have to go all in. All of our collections have to, or all of our revenues, our, our receivables right. have to flow through now account. That's not the case. That's not the case. And that's a really important point because with some of the other sources I mentioned, like factoring and discounting, you typically have to sign a term contract. It might be a year or two years years. Once you sign that contract, all of your accounts have to go through that mechanism. And as you mentioned, you know, you might have a customer that's willing to pay you with a credit card or that's willing to write you a check or pay you in 10 or 15 days. And you don't want to have to pay the fee for that. Um, the other thing with, with those sources is you typically have to notify your customer that you have sold that invoice to the factor and your customer then pays the factor. And most customers get a little nervous when they hear that because, number one, there's now a third party in the middle of your valued customer relationship, right. and they get nervous that maybe you're not as stable as they thought. And so there's a reputational risk there for the small business. With Now Account, you use Now Account when it makes sense for you. If you have a customer that pays you with a credit card, take it. If you have a customer that always pays you in 10 or 15 days, send them an invoice. But if you have a customer that you don't know their behavior, maybe they're new, or you know it and you're always having to sort of chase them down the 35th, 45th, 55th day, 85th, mm -hmm. <laughs> then you can put that on your now account and and take that risk off of, off of yourself. The other nice thing is because we are invisible, because you're still sending your invoice and we're not 
putting now account all over it, you can sort of retain that that reputation that you want and in some cases, quite honestly, act bigger. That was Laura Hodson from Now Account, and man, I'm so excited to be able to introduce you to Laura and Now Account. If uh, you're a company that is a B2B, your client is a business, and on some of your accounts, maybe they're paying in the 40, 50, 60 days or plus uh, range after you've invoiced them, and you're sitting around waiting for capital to flow in that you've already earned through delivery of your product or service. You need to get to know more about Now Account. Make sure you link up with them. Go to the left side of the Midtown Business Radio X website and scroll down a little bit you'll see the now account banner that'll take you to a website that will tell you all you need to know about now account and how it works for your business you're able to find out if their solution is one that would work for your business without going through any kind of credit type process just a couple of quick questions about your business and uh, you'll quickly know what kind of solution they offer that would be a benefit to you if they have one and or if not and so uh, it's super easy to find out if you're able to get access of those slow paying accounts funds in three to five days if you can imagine that so uh, imagine being able to now take on larger accounts or add people um, or office space whatever it may be that if you had that capital in your hands uh, what would you be able to do with it grow i'm sure next up i've got mr bill plunk he's a commercial collection specialist Um, his company is called simco c-i-m-c-o and I met Bill uh, through through LinkedIn, actually. I, he was recommended as one of those people that you might possibly know. Uh, and, of course, his name, Bill Plunk, P-L-U-N-K, uh, made me pause and go, okay, now who's this guy? And uh, when I saw Simcoe, I wanted to find out what they did, uh, see if they might be a cool company to feature. I'm so glad that I reached out and uh, connected with Bill. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And in particular, given his specialty being collections, you'll be amazed at how effective he is by using a professional, kind, compassionate approach with companies that have accounts that are in arrears. He's able to successfully achieve a rapid settlement with companies that have been getting behind and are requiring some measure of collections to pull their accounts current. Uh, He's done it so well and so effectively and with such measure of professionalism and respect that many of the businesses that he was actually collecting on after they became current with their accounts, they actually hired him to go collect on slow paying accounts for their businesses, which is a testament to Uh, how this gentleman treats customers. If you have to involve a a collections company to be able to bring some of your accounts current, you're definitely going to want to get to know Bill Plunk and Simcoe with their corporate collection service because chances are good that you might actually be able to salvage and maintain the relationship even though the account was slow paying and required some collections. The Simcoe folks are going to be able to go about it in such a fashion that you very well might be able to maintain your relationship with that company and in fact continue doing business if it uh, serves the respective company's needs. So without further ado, meet Mr. Bill Plunk. Well, actually, since the age of five, I've wanted to be in collections. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Said no one ever. (laughs) No one's ever wanted to do that. Um, I actually started out in education, uh, taught and coached in public schools in Oklahoma for 10 years, um, and then had a chance to get into banking uh, and was actually, it was presented as a lending uh, um, position. And so um, my minor was in business, so I moved into the, to, to the, the bank there. And my first day in the office, um, the guy that hired me, who had never mentioned the word collections whatsoever in the entire hiring process, <laughs> walks in and throws down a printout about three inches thick and says, here, we want you. It had account information on it. He said, here, we want you to um, get on the phone and get some of this money back where it belongs. And, and I was in collections. Uh, just like that, man. So, yeah, and but it was so cool because it, they did it on purpose. They they did it so that we would learn. You know, if they're bringing somebody up in the business, they want them to learn what a bad loan looks like, so that you don't make them. Right. And so we, every loan's a good loan when it's made. Is what they taught me. And so when we got into the um, collections part, I learned a ton about lending, what not to do, some of the things to do, and it was it was actually very helpful. Then um, did that for a few years and then came here, worked in sales for a commercial agency for a little while. And then um, we found out that there were some things going on in that agency that shouldn't have been going on. We were bringing clients in and um, they were collecting for them, but not paying the clients. So, oh. um, yeah, oh, ouch. So left um, 
I was asked to leave actually because I started asking questions about that. Oh. Got home, <laughs> uh, sat down with my wife Deidre and my business partner who's right here beside me, and a good friend of ours. And we, you know, I was basically saying, "Hey, what do we do now?" Uh, and they said, "Why don't you go into collections on your own? Uh, why don't you do it?" do it for yourself go into business and I said okay and because they, they pointed out you have the sales experience uh, you can do this and so I called up I think half a dozen was it Tira? Of, yes, of, I think so. Yeah half a dozen of the accounts that I had there at the agency that where they weren't getting paid and said I apologize you guys for bringing into this situation I didn't know about it would you I have collections experience would you allow me to collect for you and every one of them said yes and that's nice. how we started our business. And 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 take it from there because rewind a little bit because one of the things that you found out when you began you you, you got your job at the bank right. they gave you this stack of accounts said bring in some business bring in some uh, some money on these right. these uh, accounts that are in arrears but the the thing that you found out was that there was something about the way you went about what you were doing <laughs> Because everybody, uh, you know, well, I don't know if everybody's had a collections call. I know I have in my younger days. Um, and they aren't always pleasant. And they're ones that you tend to, uh, you never feel good about it. And so talk about how you made the money start flowing in, because that's what happened. Yeah. The, the main thing that I remember thinking from the first moment that I realized I was going to be making collection calls was, I want to collect the way I'd want to be collected from. And so that's been the that's been the way we've done it. Um, you know, we did it in consumer. I did it in consumer collections like that, and I've also done it in commercial collections. And and what that means is just simply treat people with respect. Um, I, I think when I was in, first in the industry, I heard the term dirt bag. I hate that term. I, I you know what I realized early in collections was, but by the grace of God, there I go. I could just as easily be me. Uh, with a, missing a paycheck or two or three and then you're starting to you know lose things and you're starting to get a bunch of calls and things right. like this and the last thing you need in that situation is to be beaten down right so um, we just were I would just always work with folks and just say hey we're gonna get closure on this and that was the surprise for me in the consumer collections what I realized and it's also played out in commercial as well is there if it's a disputed account or, 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 or even if it's not it's just nice to have it done. It, it's over with. Even if we had to repossess uh, collateral, which we did in consumer, fortunately we don't have to do that in commercial. Um, we would, we would, it would just be closure, and everybody there would be a piece at the end of it. And if it was handled well, there would be peace during the process. So. Mm-hmm. And, and as we were talking, um, you know, a few weeks back when we were getting to know each other, one of the things that you mentioned, and it really struck me, and it is a testament to how you go about what you're doing and that is that some companies that you were calling to collect on ultimately became clients yeah. that have you collecting for them yeah <laughs> I, th- I think that to me is one of the highest compliments you could be paid Absolutely. is if they say hey we like the way that your client handled this we're gonna pay your client and what I found out too was if I did this well if I did it professionally if I did it personally then they would choose if they had six, eight, ten different bills they're going to going to pay, either consumer or commercial, both. They would take, you know, my clients and hopefully move it up to the top. So um, yeah, that and then the the debtors would actually become clients, and that to us was a huge compliment. We're always glad to have a debtor become a client because they basically they know everything about how you're going to handle an account. So it's 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 a it's a win win. So you can see what I'm talking about. If that fella called you and said, hey, Cedar, this is Bill Plunk of Simcoe, and I'm calling on behalf of company XYZ, we need to bring that uh, account that you got uh, up to speed. What's a good time to get together and get a plan? I'm sure that you're probably going to take that call. You'll probably call him back if he leaves you a message. And what do you know, based on his results uh, so far, you're probably going to end up signing over some uh, funds to bring that account current because you just don't feel right treating somebody like that uh, who is that kind and compassionate to you in your dark times uh, to be able to uh, turn away from that and resist uh, actually bringing your account current. So get linked up with Bill Plunk and Simcoe Commercial Collections if you have some accounts that are lagging behind. Now, this next lady that uh, is going to be featured in a little highlight is Leanne Maxwell. And she's been one of my favorite guests, uh, along with several of these other folks here. This is kind of a top six that we're running here, uh, so to speak, um, with guests that we've really enjoyed. And Leanne Maxwell and her friend started 
Vixen Vodka, and it is one of the best vodkas you can try. They've beaten out some of the so-called big boys in taste tests, um, and they slay person after person when they have a sip of their beverage, um, whether it's in a martini or they're amazed at how clean and easy to drink it is uh, from just a straight martini to uh, mixing it in with uh, whatever flavorings and, and cocktail mixings that you like to use with vodka drinks. But the story that Leanne has about how they got started um, is really awesome. You get to learn a little bit about the process that they went through when they were designing uh, their particular uh, recipe for the Vixen Vodka. So enjoy a couple of minutes of uh, Leanne telling their story about Vixen Vodka. Literally, we were girls that were on a beach trip, and we packed bathing suits and vodka. And some trashy magazines. Not in that order? That sounds like my kind of now, vacation. Now, what counts as a trashy magazine? Is that uh, like The Inquirer or stuff like that? It's or? a different show. <laughs> yeah. Us Weekly. Pretty much like any magazine that has Kim Kardashian on the cover. How about oh, that? Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. <laughs> so, as we hung out by poolside with cocktails, the conversation ensued about what made these vodkas that we brought our vodka. What made it... What... what brand spoke to us as a woman and we realized that none of them marketed to women they looked at women as either arm candy or sex objects mm-hmm. so my partner Carrie said well we should just start our own now at the time I was in the finance industry and Carrie was the director of marketing for Comcast Spotlight <laughs> so we were ensconced in corporate America and I said who starts a vodka company and she said we would and we'd call it Vixen just like that I mean just in the blink of an eye and then we went back to doing what we were doing. But I say that we came home sobered up and remembered it was a really good idea. And we Googled it, and there was no Vixen Vodka. So I bought the name, bought about 20 websites, and then I called my ex-husband, who the husband part didn't work out so well, but he's a brilliant creative director. So I told him the name and asked him if he thought it was a great idea, and he said it was brilliant. (laughs) And he's definitely built brands. So I said, great, I'm glad you think that. Can you please do all the creative for us for free because we have no money? And he said, yes, I'm seeing legs. So I want the X in Vixen to be legs. Do you know anybody that has a good set of legs? And Carrie and I met through CrossFit, which is a boot camp type of gym. And there, were, there was a girl there that has amazing legs. She's a runner. She's an athlete. So I called her over to my house, told her to wear black tights and black stilettos. And we did a photo shoot with another CrossFitter who happens to be a brilliant photographer and <laughs> sent it to Eddie. And he created the logo. I love it. It's, uh, it's catching. I've seen it in the past and now I'm going to get to try it, which is uh, really, really cool. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the logo is definitely one you'll notice when you're walking through the aisle. Yeah, I don't think you'll forget those legs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hats off to CrossFit. Yeah. So, you know, we had the name, we had the logo, we, I bought, you know, I said I bought about 20 websites, we had websites, um, and then we kind of looked at each other and said, wonder how you make vodka. (laughs) Because we knew we liked it, and we liked to drink it, but we had no clue how to make it. So Google became our best friend. Yeah. And I just started making phone call after phone call after phone call to anybody whose name came up in that industry and just started asking a lot of questions. Um, and it, it led us to private contract distilling. And we settled on, we interviewed a few, but we settled on a distillery in Denver, Colorado because mm-hmm. of the water, which is one of the most important ingredients in vodka. So mm-hmm. they use the Rocky Mountain Spring water. And because they have a glass still. And the glass distillation process is just one that's so pure and so clean. Our only edict to them when making the vodka was to use a gluten-free base. We thought we wanted it to be made of sweet potatoes because as CrossFitters, we were eating a paleo lifestyle and we were eating a lot of sweet potatoes. Um, But once we tasted that formula, it was too heavy for us. Mm -hmm. And so they suggested um, a sweet GMO-free corn from Missouri. And that's what we settled on. So that's our formula. That's what, and that, that actually speaks to me. I know I was on your website, and what I find interesting in speaking to you is the process that you went through to get the best ingredients. And that's how the best meals start, or the best drinks start, is with high-quality ingredients. So you're starting with the best water from natural sources in Colorado. You're mm-hmm. using glass as opposed to metals and things that have solder in them and things that can leach out into the water and both cause... A, a distaste as well as adding chemicals which our bodies don't need and then finally you're using 
non-GMO corn. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. know, again, it's things that aren't going to pollute your body. And, you know, everyone's felt bad after drinking. And it's amazing that when you have alcohol that's clean, how you don't feel horrible the next morning. I mean, I can drink a single drink of something that's just not high quality and I will feel horrible the next day. And And it makes a big difference. And for us, we knew that women like to drink, but women don't like that afterburn. I almost call it the vodka wince where they wait for it. And um, so that was another one of our huge goals was to create a pure, clean vodka, 80 proof. We're not a flavor. We're not a skinny. We're not a ready to drink. We're not a mix. We are a pure 80 proof vodka, but we don't have that afterburn. And it's because of that whole process. One of our distillers um, is a chemist. So it was very much like a science field trip making this vodka. Leanne Maxwell is awesome. I, I was so pleased to have her in the studio. I love listening to her tell her story and uh, her attitude and and it, all. Just when you meet her, you can really see that the brand they're putting out is really an, an embodiment of the ladies that they are. So uh, thanks for coming on and introducing us to Vixen Vodka. I had a pleasure of getting to sample it uh, that day, and we've since been able to find it on the package store shelves near us in Mableton, Georgia. You can log on to their website at VixenVodka.com. They have a store locator where you can find uh, package stores that are selling Vixen Vodka. If you are into Kettle One or Grey Goose or you name the the, the you know what folks would consider top shelf vodkas and you're kind of a vodka snob, make sure you give Vixen Vodka a try because they're beating out the big boys so-called in blind test tests left and right and then when you couple that with their story and the the folks behind this brand it's going to be very easy to convert to being uh, vixen vodka fans for life so make sure you do that next up i have rick tapia he's the founder of jr revelry bourbon and he acting he, he actually happened to join us on the same show that we hosted leanne for he had been on the Let's Talk Small Business show earlier in the day, um, hosted by the GMSDC. And when I heard his story about uh, how he had started his own bourbon brand, being a bourbon man myself, I said, hey, man, you got to stick around for the next show coming up at 1 o'clock. I'm going to have a lady on who's going to be talking about starting her vodka. You should tell us your story about how you got started with JR Revelry. So he came on, talked about his background uh, in the uh, beverage industry, starting kind of on the accounting side and then transitioning over into um, working more and more with the, uh, the production and, and sales side of what they did. So uh, he's got a great story and it's uh, a lot of fun to be able to help emerging businesses like Rick and JR Revelry Bourbon uh, get off the ground. They're going to be on the shelves hopefully in Georgia really soon. I know they launched in New York here recently. So those folks are really lucky to be able to try his beverage out. Make sure you're bugging your uh, make sure you're bugging your distributor and your local package store to carry JR Revelry because I can assure you it's a beautiful bottle and it drinks as good as the bottle looks. So you're going to enjoy uh, getting to know Rick Tapia. It's funny because working in the industry, you obviously follow all of the different trends and the evolution and things that happened. Um, you know, I've been working in it since 1997. Vodka is still king. It's still number one. It's the by far and away the most occasion. Um, product spirit. Uh, however, the recent trend has gone into brown spirits, uh, whiskey, whiskey of any type, whether you're Scotch, Irish, American. Um, being an immigrant, um, coming to the U.S. for a better life, better opportunity, um, I felt that what's more American than creating an American whiskey, that being a bourbon whiskey. Um, so that was really my vision in, in wanting to create a product and create something new and different and kind of stand out, um, be different. There's a, there's a great craft movement right now happening across yeah. the entire U.S. You've got distilleries being built in every state. The small batch thing is every kind city. of city. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's great because that really lends itself um, to a totally new generation of drinkers, of spirit drinkers. Um, the new generation is coming in and wanting to support new brands, um, new brands that come from small companies, people, um, that people behind these brands. They want to get to know you. They want to get to meet you. They want to be able to see you. Um, so that it, it's this whole evolution of, of what has been uh, the consumer mindset and most importantly the, the, the consumer palettes. So all of that coupled together kind of you know gave me the courage and the you know to take that leap of faith and say, hey, it's the right time in my career. It's the right time. Um, I, the other thing was I didn't want to leave Georgia and move out of Georgia again. And mm-hmm. the corporate side was telling me you need to move. And I was like, I don't want to move. <laughs> I like Georgia. I like the quality of life. I like the cost of living. I love the people. 
Um, I love the evolution of, you know, the city, the transformation that's gone, the growth. I mean, my block doesn't look the same. Nothing looks the same anymore. There's new buildings, there's new sidewalks, there's new everything. So um, I've got a four-year-old daughter that was born, you know, here. So I was just like, I was like, I, um, she needs to grow up and experience um, what we're experiencing now. Um, so that was really the kind of kick in the butt that said, hey, if you don't want to move again, you got to figure it out. <laughs> and, um, and, then, uh, and then that just kind of put the just do it kind of into it and said, okay, you know, you've been thinking about it. Um, you're at the right time where you just got to do it. So I figured, let me just do it. It was a lot of fun sitting down with Rick talking about JR Reverie and also Vixen Vodka with Leanne Maxwell. They were there the same day. It was a lot of fun having them both in studio talking about launching their distilled beverage brands. And next up, I've got a really cool guy. He formed a company called Predicto Analytics. Mario Montag, the CEO and founder of Predicto Analytics, came by and talked to me about how they're able to take sensor data given to them by industries in the oil and gas sector, transportation, railroads, heavy manufacturing like steel manufacturing. All these companies have massive or very mission critical pieces of equipment that if they fail, then we're talking about hours or days of delay, obviously bringing five, six, seven figures in dollars lost per day or per hour. Uh, If you look at certain events like oil spills, for example, where you're losing seven figures an hour or six figures an hour, not to mention the consequences to the environment around where the oil spill happens. If you have an opportunity to fix a piece of equipment before it actually fails and allows an event to occur, wouldn't you do that? That's what Predicto Analytics can do for the companies in these types of spaces. And Mario took a few minutes to share a case study about a company that's in the steel manufacturing sector that is saving millions of dollars because they're involved with Predicto Analytics and helping them prevent downtime you know and i saw the one of the case studies that you mentioned on the video on your website which was a great video by the way um, but uh, that it talked about a steel plant for example that with 90 percent accuracy you're able to predict as many as half of their events and saving them three million dollars yeah so uh, that makes the shareholders pretty happy <laughs> yes <laughs> this is a a company it's a 90 billion dollar giant um they lose about a billion dollars a year uh, so that gives you an idea of the magnitude of this this company. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, your losses of a billion, right? Right. So many companies wish they had revenue. You just kind of build it of, in that that's going to be an expense. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Um, and they have uh, 100 plants in 60 countries, a very, very large uh, ArcelorMittal is the name of the company. And they said, look, you know, let's start with this one plant in Germany. We have uh, about $22 million in delays uh, in this one plant alone, right? Could you help us predict when we're going to have a delay so that we can be proactive and prevent this from, from happening? So we, um, they had about 40 different delay classifications. So whenever they had a failure, they would classify them into you know, 40 different categories. And uh, we only started you know, focusing on four, the, the big painful four that they had. And uh, yeah, our predictive analytics engine is able to predict with about 90, 91% accuracy uh, where in the plant the delay is going to happen, when it's going to happen, and the type of delay that it is. And for them, the prediction window is about a two-hour window, Okay. Which is, which is great, right? A two-hour window on a railroad side won't do anything. Right. But for them, since everything is centralized, it's one plant, the entire team is there. Um, they're able to send and do an inspection while the, 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 the steel is, is running or sometimes even shut off the plant um, and, and do a deep dive and find out what's happening. And shutting that off, uh, maybe it may have an impact of, of less than an hour versus having an unexpected you know, failure and delay that could impact them for a whole day. Right. So that's a very interesting story. Um, we, we sold it to headquarters in Luxembourg. Uh, it took a long time for you know Luxembourg to decide if, if they should be signing the statement of work or Germany. You know <laughs> these big organizations just move right. a lot slower. Uh, but we have been navigating that successfully, and uh, there's a lot of eyes on on this project that that kicked off in Germany. So that that should be a, a huge opportunity for us to expand uh, to the rest of the plants in the next year. It was a lot of fun getting to sit down with Mario and learn about the different things that Predicto Analytics is able to do for those companies in the heavy manufacturing, oil and gas, and railroad and transportation spaces. 
they might just be the solution that prevents the next big oil spill. So make sure if you know somebody in those industries that you say, hey, you got to check out Mario Montag and Predicto Analytics. He was on this Midtown Business Radio show. Check it out because you might be the person that leads to the prevention of the next big catastrophe. So make sure you introduce people to Mario Montag over Predicto. Next up, I've got Ron Herman and William Mills of the William Mills Agency. Ron is the CEO and co-founder of Psionic Mobile, and they developed a really cool digital rewards application that benefits both large major chains like Lowe's, Papa John, Sephora, GameStop, and more. Thousands of them, like 60,000 thousand merchants across the country. They're also able to offer this really cool digital rewards program to the local merchants. Say, for example, one of the local participating merchants in Midtown, Atlanta, called Zocalo. They're a Mexican restaurant that's highly regarded here in town. Great margaritas, great tacos, and more. But they get to compete on the same level with a company like Lowe's by offering this fantastic rewards program called Eye on Rewards. Ron's going to take a couple minutes here and tell us why it makes sense for the small merchant to participate in Eye on Loyalty. We, um, part of our strategy was to create a, a partnership with our merchants. So to, to keep it real simple, um, all these huge national brands that I mentioned where we're you know, almost 40,000 locations, in reality, when the customer, when the consumer shops and pays with the app, a Sonic Mobile is the one that's rewarding those ions. So if I spend $100 at Lowe's, um, I earn 1% of that purchase amount in ions that show up on my phone instantly. So Lowe's doesn't reward those ions. Lowe's pays us a commission for bringing in the customer, right. and we take a good portion of that commission and reward the customer okay. instantly. So those ions, um, which are, are, can be substantial, um, you, know, can, you can earn them very quickly. Those come from Sonic Mobile, and they can be spent anywhere. Okay. They spend like cash. Um, a thousand ions is equal to one dollar, and you can use them as a consumer anytime you want on any amount on any purchase at any time. So that's that's the the high level national where you can use your ions anywhere. Um, but to your point, the local merchants, when we started this a few years ago, we got some pretty heavy pushbacks. Right. Like, Wait a second. I want them to come to my store. Don't, right. I don't want them to use these anywhere else. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, our position early on was um, that sounds good in practice, but in reality, consumers are loyal to where they earn their ions or earn the rewards, not necessarily where they get to spend them. So if you think about that... Um, that's that. That was kind sort of sort of like our, that Delta Platinum. Precisely, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's they, they still are, no. That's not going to happen. So we created this. Um, call it a bifurcated pilot, you know, uh, ion. But to the consumer, they all look the same. It's mm -hmm. just spending power, right? Um, so if I were to go into say, um, and I'm going to use local Midtown, if that's all right. Sure. If I were to go into uh, the Zocalo restaurant at 10th and Piedmont. Um, pay with my app and earn ions there on my meal and margaritas, which I go there frequently. Mm -hmm. um, then um, I turn around and I can use the ions that I earn there at Zocalo only. But when you combine the Zocalo ions with the ions that Sonic Mobile gives you as a, as a consumer, your spending power there is much greater. So I may have only earned a dollar's worth of ions, for example, for that one meal. But I went to Lowe's, you know, two or three days ago, and spent fourteen hundred dollars on a mini mower for my backyard, and I earned a lot of ions there. That I turned around and combined with my local ions, I can go back and get a pitcher of margarita and not pull a penny out of my wallet. I think it's really cool that uh, that the merchant. The rewards are coming out of the commission that they're paying you, and it's already you know a very low commission. So you're just reinvesting that back to push them back to your local merchants, which is a you know that's accomplishing what they were hoping to accomplish. And, and that's one of the things that fascinated me about what Ron was doing is that the oligarch oligarchy I don't know if I'm saying that correctly of the existing payment structures have such high margins. I can't remember how much you know in terms of billions of net profit that Visa creates every year. But that what Ron's and his team has developed is a platform that enables any size merchant, whether it's a one-person flower shop, uh, to offer the same type of technology, smartphone-based rewards program yeah. that the largest retailer in the world can have at practically nothing. You're exactly right.